I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2. And you'll need a Bible to follow along for the message this week as every week. So if you need a Bible, these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back, just get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you that's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 2. It is said that love is a many-splendored thing, and that is certainly true. Love is unconditional, and therefore it does not depend on merit and does not demand anything in return. Love is also an act of the will, and therefore it doesn't depend on feelings. But although love is more than feelings, it's not less than feelings. The Bible teaches, as we're going to see a bit later, that love involves affection as well as duty. And that means that when ministry to one another is motivated by mutual affection for one another, that provides a powerful incentive for continued service in the Lord's work. That's what we're going to see today, actually in chapter 3, but we're going to start in chapter 2 in just a moment. Now, remind you, That when we last left Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, he was explaining his actions in the past, his actions while he ministered in the city of Thessalonica, to whom, to which this letter was written. We've seen that since Paul left Thessalonica, accusations had been made regarding his motives for ministry. Many said that he was motivated by ambition or avarice, by money or for power. His selfishness, they said, is seen in the fact that he left us behind while we in Thessalonica are still being persecuted. Because Paul's circumstances did not allow him to make a return visit to the church there, he dispatched his protege, Timothy, to do so. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul wrote to them, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned, By being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Then he goes on to explain why he couldn't do that. And then if you look in chapter 3 and verse 5 that we saw last week, chapter 3 and verse 5, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Now, that's where we left off. And now between verse 5 and 6 of 1 Thessalonians 3, there's a gap of unspecified time. Time for Paul to fret and wait with apprehension. Wait for Timothy, who he's dispatched to go in his stead. Wait for Timothy to return. And as he waits, he undoubtedly is wondering, would the Thessalonians believe the charges of Paul's accusers? Would they abandon him? Worse, would they abandon the faith and thereby show their profession to be insincere and Paul's labor to have been in vain? And the answer to all of that comes in verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and he has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. 
For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul gets this anticipated news from Timothy, and it's welcome news of their love for him. And he describes their mutual love in terms of feeling and of emotion and affection. So today, as we continue our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see the importance of demonstrating our love for one another by our mutual affection for our brothers and sisters in the church. As we do each week, let's ask God to help us as we do that. Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather. You have given us this sacred appointment in your presence with your word open before us. You've allowed us to be here despite potential hindrances, including the weather. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And we look at this as your divine appointment. And so now we want to learn from you about you and about ourselves and about our interactions with one another. Help us, Lord, to learn how to love one another with deep affection so that we represent the heart of our God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we have an outline inserted in your program for the message. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out so that you can follow along. And I say first in that outline that mutual affection results from spiritual factors. Mutual affection results from spiritual factors. Again, verse 6. Timothy has just now come to us from you, and he's brought good news about your faith and love. And when Paul says there that Timothy has just now come, he's saying he has even now, as I'm writing this, I have just received this report. So Timothy has come. It's been some undetermined amount of time that he's been gone. Paul's been fretting about what news he might bring back. And now he has heard this good news. And just now, immediately now, upon receiving this good news, I, Paul, am writing to you to let you know what a refreshing thing it is for me to receive that. His writing was immediate upon Timothy's report. It's because this news from Timothy was so good that immediately upon hearing it, he then writes to them. There's a lesson for us in that, friends. We ought not procrastinate in letting our brothers and sisters know how we feel about them. Very often we do that. You know, I meant to tell somebody how much I appreciate them, that I've been praying for them, but failed to do that. We ought not procrastinate. The importance of the report that Timothy brought back is seen in the words in verse 6 of good news. He's come and he has brought good news. The word that's translated, the Greek word translated good news is euangelion. And we get our word gospel from that. Now, this is the only place in the entire Bible where the word gospel is used of general good news as opposed to the good news of Jesus. And so here's the idea. Paul had preached the gospel of Christ to these people in Thessalonica. And now the fact that they were standing firm served as a veritable gospel in return to Paul. Paul notes that the mutual affection that he's going to describe is based on And cannot exist apart from their spiritual relationship with God and with one another. That's why he says in verse 6, this good news has come about your faith and your love. So I say in your outline that mutual affection results from spiritual factors. The first of which is it's the result of our faith. Faith speaks of their Godward vertical relationship between them and the Lord. 
Love speaks of their manward, horizontal relationship between one another. And we see these twin dimensions of spiritual relationship in a number of places in Scripture. One of those is in Colossians chapter 1, where the same Paul wrote, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. Faith in the Lord, love for one another, go together. You remember that there were two tablets of the Ten Commandments that were given by the Lord to Moses. And those Ten Commandments can be divided into two categories of commandments. Those that have to do with our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. But then you have another six of those that relate to our relationships with one another. We will not bear false witness, not covet, not commit adultery, bear false witness, and so on. Jesus, in fact, was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you'll remember that he famously said in Matthew chapter 22 that there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And he said, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands, love God and love neighbor, Hang all the law and the prophets. And so one commentator has said these two terms of faith and love state concisely the sum total of godliness, the sum total of the Christian life. Now, I've said to you many times that when you see this word faith in your Bible, you should think of the word believe. At least it helps me to understand what's meant by faith, because those are the same Greek word in your New Testament, faith and believe. So Paul is saying they believed the truth and thereby they had had a relationship established with God. And this relationship is evidenced by their love for one another. So mutual affection results from these spiritual factors, the first of which is faith. I say in your outline, secondly, it results. It's the result of our love. There was no question that Paul wanted to see the Thessalonians. He had said that, as we saw last week, chapter 2 and verse 17, and then moving forward. He wanted to, he could not, and so he dispatched Timothy in his place. There was no question that he wanted to see them, but did they want to see him? Verse 6 says this. Timothy has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. That phrase, long to see is a word for an intense desire to be reunited. This strong yearning is the same as a babe desiring mother's milk. Paul uses the same term of his own desire to see his protege Timothy, from whom he had been separated at a later time. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, writing to Timothy, Paul said this, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Long to see you. Same word that's translated in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 3. Now, this love that they have, this love that comes from the fact that they have faith in God, what is that? Well, it is giving. Love is giving of oneself for the benefit of another. But here, Paul focuses not on what we do, now hear this, not on what we do, but how we feel about what we do. So let me talk for a bit about this relationship between love and being our giving of ourselves for the benefit of another. Love is doing 
what's in the best interest of another. That's all true, giving and doing. The relationship, though, between that and how we feel about what we're doing for others and the others for whom we do it. Our culture has radically redefined love. And they've redefined it in a way that reduces love to strictly emotion and feeling. And therefore, it's transient. Therefore, according to the culture, when the feeling is gone, then it's over. The love is gone because it's completely equated with emotion and with feeling. And so our reaction has been to dismiss the emotional element of love. And so it's not uncommon for you to hear in churches, it doesn't matter how you feel, just do. Now, it's true, friends, that love is not only or primarily feeling, and it does require a choice. It does require an act of the will, which is primary. We see this in the famous John 3.16. God so loved the world that he, his love was shown in that he gave. Jesus said this, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So again, it's on what one gives. It's on what one does. In 1 John 3.16, we're given a definition of love that, again, focuses on this giving, on this doing. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then finally, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So love in the Bible most definitely is primarily what we do, what we give for the benefit of others. All of these verses that I've mentioned involve action, doing, volition. So love cannot be reduced to feeling. It always involves an act of the will. And this is why I've often given that working definition of love to you that says love is doing what is in the best interest of another. But hear this. That was never intended to suggest that we should not seek to cultivate affection for one another or that true love can be devoid of such affection. Did you know that true love cannot be devoid of affection? In the love chapter in the Bible, many of you know what that is, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The entire 13 verses of that chapter are devoted to what love is. And at the very beginning, Paul, who wrote that, like 1 Thessalonians, says this, If I give all I possess to the poor, notice, I'm giving, I'm doing. But if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body even to the flames, I sacrifice myself. But I have not love, I gain nothing. So notice, you can do all of that even to the extreme and still not have love, says Paul. So even though love must involve giving and is primarily involved in giving and doing, it cannot be equated only with what we do. This is why the great theologian Jonathan Edwards said that the will and the affections work hand in hand. In fact, in the Bible, we're commanded to have certain emotions. I'm going to show that to you in a moment. We're commanded to have certain emotions. Now, that runs completely contrary to the way we see emotions. Emotions in our culture are just sovereign. You just either have them or you don't. It's either there or it's not. You're either feeling it or you're not. So we say things like, I'm not feeling it. So if I'm not feeling it, I don't do it. But no, we're commanded in Scripture actually to have certain emotions. 1 Peter 1, love one another 
But notice, it could just stop there, love one another, period. No, love one another deeply from the heart. Romans chapter 12, love one another. Again, it could just be a period, but no, love one another with brotherly affection. And then there are many other places in Scripture where we're commanded to have particular emotions and cultivate particular affections. Joy in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again. Rejoice. Peace in Colossians 3.15. Grief in Romans 12.15. Mourn with those who mourn. Remember that? So the question is, well, what if I don't feel, what if I don't have affection for others that I'm called to love? Well, let me offer a working definition of affection for one another. It's the feeling that results from seeing people as they are. Affection is the feeling that results from seeing people as they are. So if you're not feeling it, then begin seeing people as they truly are. Begin thinking about people as they truly are. The Bible tells us this of Jesus' ministry. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Jesus saw them as they were. He saw them in terms of their need. And as a result of that, he had compassion upon them. As we see the unsaved, those who don't know Jesus, those who do not have a relationship with him, our hearts should be moved toward them. Paul said this in Romans chapter 10, my heart's desire for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So affection is this feeling that results from seeing people as they are. So what do you know about people that ought to affect the way you see them then? Every human being is made in the image of God. So that should affect how we see them, true? Every Christian is being remade into the image of God. And God is at work in them, even if the pace of that change is too slow for our liking. When you see a fellow Christian, I ask you, do you see them as they fully are or only as the annoyance that they can be? I mean, really. I told you this some time ago, but, you know, there was a a guy said many people in our churches are what he called EGRs. Extra grace required. And every church has extra grace required people. And I always say, now, if you're sitting here thinking, man, I don't know of anybody like that in our church, that means it's you. (laughs) John Piper says, he's asked this question quite often. What if you don't feel delight in your obedience? What if you don't feel the affection in what you're doing. His answer is not to simply get on with your duty because feelings don't matter. His answer involves three steps. I'm going to give those to you on the screen. The first is this. He says, confess the sin of joylessness. Remember, the Bible commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. So confess the sin of joylessness. 
Acknowledge the culpable coldness of your heart. Don't say it doesn't matter how we feel. And then secondly, pray that God would restore the joy of obedience. And then thirdly, while you're doing that, yes, indeed, do your duty. Do it in the hope that God will rekindle the delight. Last weekend, Kim and I celebrated our 33rd anniversary. Now, suppose on our anniversary, I bring home a dozen long-stemmed red roses for her. I didn't, by the way. I, <laughs> it's not a confession. I, we went away. We went away overnight, and we had a good time together. But suppose I did. And she meets me at the door, and I hold out the roses, and she says, Oh, Kenny, they're beautiful. Thank you. And she gives me a big hug. And then suppose I hold up my hand, and I say, Matter-of-factly, don't mention it. It's my duty. Loses something, doesn't it? In fact, she would probably lose something as well if I, if I said that. So Paul's flow of thought here is this. Faith in God is shown by our love for one another. And our love for one another is shown by affection for one another. So the Thessalonians' loving remembrance of Paul was as it should be. One commentator has said, loving remembrance of former teachers as Paul was to them is a Christian duty. And in connection with faith and love, it's a fair evidence of Christian character. Dr. McCune, the past president of the seminary from which I graduated, would, every time he mentioned his former seminary mentor, he would say, my esteemed teacher, Alva J. McLean. Every time he said it, my esteemed teacher. And so they're saying this, we have this affection for you, Paul, because of your ministry to us and how we think about you. We long to see you. And Paul says at the end of verse 6, that feeling is mutual. The end of verse 6, Timothy has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Now, friends, you know, Paul could have just skipped all the emotional commentary. But he understood the power of affectionate love. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that all is always wonderful between fellow believers. The fact is, it can be quite difficult to love each other because if we're honest, we're not lovable all the time. In fact, we can be downright ornery and even sinful. I get a kick out of those pictures that you see in you know, Christian books, magazines, or in, particularly in children's Bible stories. And you see a shepherd cuddling a cute little lamb in his arms. Do you know that sheep are really not all that pleasant? Now, I include myself in this because I'm a sheep too. But John MacArthur says, quote, sheep are dumb, smelly, dirty, and they have sharp hooves. I heard one pastor say, I've got some people in my church I would not want to be handcuffed to when the Lord returns. I mean, the truth is, if we're honest, serving with one another can be difficult. But we're still called to do for one another and to think about one another as we really are so that we're not only doing, but we're doing out of affection for one another. Serving with each other in love and showing our love to each other by the way, by what we say and how we say it and when we say it. It's not easy, but it's essential to our ability to build each other up. So in your outline, I say mutual affection results from spiritual factors. 
And it results in spiritual motivation. When that kind of thing happens, then it's a motivator for us in a couple of important ways. One, it results, I say in the outline, in encouragement. Verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. That word encourage literally means to call alongside. It envisions putting an arm around someone in order to, to comfort them in their need. And this report from Timothy to Paul brought strength and courage in difficult circumstances. It encouraged him, I say in the outline, to endure difficulty. He says in verse 7, this came to us in all our distress and persecution. And those are two aspects of the same whole difficult situation in which Paul found himself. Not only at this time, but many times as we're going to see in his ministry. Distress speaks of the necessity of a necessity that just forces itself upon someone. Just circumstances that you have to deal with, that you don't have any choice to get out of. They just force themselves upon you. That's distress. Persecution or affliction indicates crushing pressure to which one is subjected. Now, we don't know the exact nature of all that Paul was going through as he wrote this from Corinth to Thessalonica, but we do know that he was in the city of Corinth, a city to which he had come in much distress, Acts chapter 18 tells us, probably because of all the trouble that he experienced in the cities along the way there. If you read from Acts chapter 16, 17, and then into 18, you get to Acts chapter 18, that's when Paul arrives in Corinth, from whence he's writing this letter, But on the way there, he experienced difficulty in all of the cities along the way. So that when he came to Corinth and he arrived there, he was so down and so fearful that the Lord himself had to appear to him in Acts chapter 18. In verse 9 and verse 10 of Acts chapter 18, the Lord appears to Paul and he says, Paul, do not fear for I am with you. And he says, go and preach because I have many people in this city in this city of Corinth. But before he got there, he went to Philippi. And in Philippi, he was imprisoned. As we saw a few weeks ago in Thessalonica, he was harassed and he was forced to leave the city against his will. The number of times in Scripture, Paul talks about the hardships that he had to endure. One of those is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I've been in prison more frequently Been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again five times. I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from the Gentiles, in the city, in the country, at sea, and from false brothers. I've labored and I've toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now you think about being that guy. With all that he had upon him and all that he had experienced, prior to coming to Corinth, And he's hearing these rumblings that maybe the Thessalonians are departing from what he taught them. 
And he sends Timothy, and then Timothy comes back with gospel, good news, encouragement. They love you, Paul, and they love the Lord. And they long to see you. This wonderful news from Thessalonica could not have come then at a better time for Paul. And friends, I've experienced this. Not all the things that Paul has experienced. I don't mean that, but here's what I've experienced. In the very moment that I need encouragement, my loving Father knows what I need and He gives me that encouragement precisely when I need it. God knows what we need and when we need it. And He did that for Paul. This mutual affection provides encouragement in difficulty. It also provides encouragement, I say in the outline, to continue on in ministry. To continue ministry. Verse 8. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul and his associates had been given, as it were, a new lease on life. And that's because of the success of the cause of Christ, the winning of souls to him and the continuance of souls in him. That was Paul's very life. And the fact that the Thessalonians had proved to be steadfast was demonstration that his work of proclaiming the gospel to them had been successful and it made life worthwhile for him. In fact, so important was the cause of Christ to Paul that some say that if he had received a negative report at this low point while he's there in Corinth with all that he had experienced, if he had received a negative report from Timothy, it would have been a virtual death blow to him. So I ask you, does it matter what people think of us? In one sense, the answer to that is no. If people don't approve of what we're doing, if we're doing the right thing, then we have to plow ahead and do the right thing. But if Paul had not gotten this positive report from the church in Thessalonica, it's interesting to wonder what would have happened to him. Would he have been able to go on? Would Paul have really quit? He probably would not have quit, but it does matter how we feel and how we communicate to and about one another in order for us to continue on in ministry. And Paul says that. He says that in 2 Corinthians. He says, when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, this time by the coming of Titus. And so he receives good word from Titus at the time he needs it. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort that you had given to him. And he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. He says to these same Corinthians in the chapter just before that, We opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you. You're withholding yours from us as a fair exchange. I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do you see how much Paul needed to hear from them? That they were growing in the faith. That they were taking well and what he had to what he had taught and what he had taught was had taken root in their lives. We sometimes think we don't need each other. But when we think that, friends, we've forgotten at least two things. We've forgotten, one, that we are in a battle, a war, a spiritual war, and we need each other in the foxhole. And secondly, we've forgotten who the enemy is. 
It's said that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its, its own and shoots its own wounded. So mutual affection results in spiritual motivation. It results in encouragement and, I say in your outline, it results in prayer. And quickly, two kinds of prayer. Prayer of thanks. Verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? That's a rhetorical question. The expected answer to which is this. We can't thank God enough for you. Now, the phrase in return is literally repay. How can we repay? Repay whom? Repay God. It's repaying God because God is the one who has produced these results in them. So how can we repay God enough for what he's done in your lives to make our lives then really worthwhile? But notice this, friends. It's repaying God because of you. So God is the ultimate one to whom our gratitude and thankfulness goes. But the proximate cause is you. Success in ministry that he has given in the form of those who are showing faith toward God and love toward one another. Sometimes we make an unnecessary tension between mentioning our thankfulness for others and still giving credit to God. In fact, I've known people who have said it's wrong to give public recognition of our thankfulness for others. That's a false tension. The scriptures themselves are replete with examples of thanking God, yes, but thanking God for others. Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God every time I remember you. I thank God, but I'm remembering you. And then there are also the benedictions at the end of most of the letters of the New Testament where God's people are commended by name. So our mutual affection results in thanksgiving for one another. And then lastly in your outline. Prayers of thanks, but also prayers of petition. Verse 10. Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and again and supply what is lacking in your faith. We pray for opportunity to minister to each other and for one another's spiritual growth. Now, next week in verses 11 through 13, we're going to look at the actual content of Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. But for now, just consider this. Friends, the best use of our tongues is to give thanks and to pray for our brothers and sisters. It's very difficult to gossip and slander another if you make a habit of praying for them. So, friends, God has designed the church to be a community of faith, a community of faith. Our ministry as a collective body, as a church, means we must develop and cultivate mutual affection for each other. This means, among other things, that we must get to know one another so that we can discover how we can minister to one another. Getting to know each other's needs so that we can pray intelligently for each other. For many Christians, the only fellowship they have with brothers and sisters is the back of their head during worship. Is that you? The only thing you know about the people in this room is the color of their hair because you see the back of their head every week. That's it. When we have our refreshment time, which we will do in just a few moments, that's purposely designed to give you time to get to know people. So do you take advantage of that? Or do you hide off in a corner, hide off in a corner and hear friends that ought not be? 
you interact with people, you find people that you haven't interacted with so that you can get to know them, so that you can get to know them, to love them. That's why we have community groups and homes. That's why we have growth partners, for you to be in a one-on-one relationship with someone, getting to know them, getting to know their needs, praying for them, encouraging one another. Just a cursory reading of your Bible will reveal that God has called us to work together to accomplish his purposes. If you don't have that desire, pray that the Lord will give it to you. Confess the sin of not having the right desires. Pray that the Lord will give it to you. And in the meantime, serve God in his work in the hopes that the service itself will create the passion. Here's your take home truth then. Christians should express affection for one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us, allowing us to be in your presence with your word and to learn about you and about ourselves and about the relationships to which you have called us. Father, I ask you to help me and help us as your people to not simply go through the motions this Sunday or any Sunday. As we hear from you, help us to take to heart what you have said as the command of the one and only true and living God the one whom we profess to be our Lord. And if we are not doing these things, then today, help today to be the day that we begin obedience. Lord, help us to reach out to one another, to love one another deeply from the heart. And through that, may those from the outside see that we are your disciples because we love one another. And thereby, may you build up your body as we build one another up in encouragement and in the faith. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.